welcome to Afro Leads, the podcast. Afro Leads consists of two sisters, myself, Julie and Steph, and we are on a mission to promote UK Black business and culture. At present, we have an Instagram platform where we post positive posts about Black business, groups, communities, celebrities, music, and so much more. For Woman Crush Wednesday, we shone a light on Kandasi Chimbiri, who writes under the name K.N. Chimbiri, an incredible author of Black history books for children. She was born in London in 1968 to parents from Barbados. Her parents returned to Barbados in 1980 and she received her secondary school education there, falling in love with history. Candace didn't grow up wanting to be a writer. However, she was greatly disturbed by the lack of diversity in children's books, particularly in black history. But in 2009, Candace set up her own one-woman publishing house to address this inequality. Over the next decade, she researched, wrote, published and distributed four black history books for children from her spare room. In 2020, Candace decided to give up publishing and concentrate solely on writing for younger readers. Her books include Secrets of the Afrocomb, 6,000 Years of Art and Culture, The Story of Early Ancient Egypt, Step Back in Time to Ancient Kush, The Story of the Windrush, a tribute to the Windrush Generation pioneers. A fun fact is that her most popular title, The Story of the Windrush, actually required a reprint, a must-read for adults and kids alike. We absolutely loved it. She's also worked with museums on children's trails, workshops, outreach projects and tours. In 2013, she was part of the community committee for the origins of the Afrocomb 6,000 Years of Art and Culture exhibition in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. Candace Chimbiri really embodies being the change you want to see. We couldn't be more honoured to have her on our podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steph and Julie. An honour to have you I'm on the on the podcast. Um, we when we plan and prep for the podcast, we obviously looked back at our previous posts, and I was just thinking, I can't believe that you've said yes yeah. because you're so accomplished. <laughs> you've got obviously got so many things and that you get involved with, not just purely in terms of the sort of literature side of things. You do so much, so I was just like, I can't believe we've got her. This is yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was really honoured actually when you asked me. I, I've seen a little bit of what you've done. I've seen you on um, Afro Leads and Afro Leads on Instagram, I should say. And I just think it's really great to see, you know, two sisters doing something positive for the community, you know, promoting not just me, <laughs> you know, you know, but you're promoting different black businesses, black culture, authors, writers. So of course I would say yes. Oh, thank, thank you. you. So where do we start? You're of Barbadian heritage and partly grew up in Barbados. We always like to find out a little, well, we're quite nosy to find out. Yes, very much so. <laughs> so <laughs> our guests. So do you have any siblings would be one thing? I do. I have one sister. Uh, she's four years younger than me. And she still lives in Barbados with my parents. It's just me from the immediate family. But I have got, you know, cousins and uh, other people here other family here a bit of wider family but not much not much so it's most of my family are still in Barbados and what brought your family to the UK initially well yeah it's the same as most of the Windrush generation you know just looking for a better life you know obviously there are a variety of reasons my dad came in 1962 and my mum came in 1965 they actually met here my dad used oh. to live, yeah, they met here, they were introduced through friends who thought they'd be a good couple, and uh, that's, yeah, they actually met here, so my dad 
when he came in 62, he lived in North London, Finsbury Park. He came over working on the buses, which was typical, not as a driver, he was a bus conductor. I was talking about this to one of my godchildren recently, and uh, she said, a conductor? Thinking, is this something to do with music? And of course, yeah, they don't know obviously what it is. So I had to explain, no, that was the person who used to go around and take the cash and you know, this before contactless and before cards were so popular and and it certainly wasn't tap and go, you know. So, <laughs> okay. yeah, wow. so I had to explain, yes, isn't it? It's just like, yeah, the past, there's a saying that says the past is a, a foreign country and it really is sometimes, you know. So my dad came in 62 and my mum came three years later. Obviously they hadn't met yet though, but she came in 65 and yeah, basically, my parents are both from um, working class backgrounds, particularly my mum. You know, they're not coming from like middle class backgrounds or anything like that. They're coming from Barbados. And I think a lot of people don't realise how poor Barbados was at that time. It was really poor. You know, there's lots of talk about the empire and colonies and things like that. And I think some of those people forget how impoverished people were in the colonies, you know many of the colonies so yeah they just it was just an opportunity that had come about and they came just with one suitcase typical story I'm like what did you have in that case tiny, tiny suitcase when you look at them compared tiny, to what we're taking, two weeks travel two weeks travel yeah. and even I'm annoyed when they stop letting us take two cases on holiday yeah. <laughs> and we can take only one even I struggle and they're coming and this is a time when you know People didn't, when they left, it wasn't like you just went back every year on a holiday like I did when I came. You know, in those days, you just went and you don't know when you're going to see your family again. It might be 10 years, 20 years, and it just wasn't the same. And they are going to this country that they've never been to before with all these dreams and hopes, you know, and everything in one case. So, yeah, so that's 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 their story. And then they met and got married. Well, actually, my mum was having me and then they got married, but... <laughs> here did they have any connection like if would they have met in Barbados had they stayed or did they no. not have no kind of no connection no because they're com- yeah they're from different parts of the island right. so oh. highly highly unlikely so it's sort of coming here and even though they're living in different parts of London you know I think there's still very much a community spirit amongst the African Caribbean people at that time you know I mean most of their friends were from Jamaica as well so I remember growing up in the 70s in Lewisham and you know you sort of knew the other African Caribbean families around so my uncle his wife is from St Vincent so we knew some some Vincentians and then obviously you know we most of the people around us are Jamaicans but then you also know the other Barbadians as well and then we've got our own family as well like another uncle so it's that sort of a community spirit, you know? So I think even though Britain was never like segregated when people came here, people lived obviously on streets where there were, you know, the white English people, white British people as well, but you still tended to get to know, I think, other people around who were from the Caribbean, which has changed a bit now, I think. So we're of Ghanaian heritage and we grew up in Hull mm-hmm. in the eighties. And again, we've got aunties and uncles that aren't like actual aunties, but because there are so few 
other people of course you just very quickly became yeah. family um, yes and if you see any like not so much now because it's a little bit more diverse but if you saw anyone any other black person in Hull the chances are that you knew them or they knew your parents yeah. yes um, yes so yeah I think your parents are so great how old were they when they came like do you mind asking I don't, I don't I, you know I have to work it out but they must have been in there I think they were like 19 or 20 oh, really yeah, I'm not sure. yeah oh yeah people came young yeah they were young I think my dad might have been I'm not sure 19 I, I feel like crazy young yeah really I mean the matter I didn't realize it'd be that young and it puts it into perspective because I was recently talking to a friend about just how quick life goes by and how much when you when we went to uni at age 18 19 we thought we were like so in our heads we thought we were adults but essentially I used to come home every couple of weeks to get my washing done and to get like lots of Tupperware of food of like jollof rice and soups and all this brought from my mum but and, and again, put it in perspective of your parents. Like you say, they come, they came with a suitcase. They couldn't bring all of their home comforts, even the food that they would have even, you know, the, the spice, the flavorings. Yeah. And they were put in a situation whereby it wasn't it was was missold to them essentially in terms of the the social appetite um, of the time. Yeah. And, you know, obviously had a like you say. I think it's great that they had a community, and that, but I think sometimes that was out of a, a must have situation it wasn't out of you know it was a necessity to have that community spirit essentially because a lot of the people of the time to my knowledge would have felt so ostracized from what British life was at the time and then to sort of to think well actually I'm going to bring children up in this environment it's again it's another brave another a very 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 brave yeah um, yeah thought and a mindset to have I think I think so and I think you know like obviously for me they're my parents so you know, you kind of take your parents for granted. They're just your parents and, you know, you don't really think about it in that context. And when I went back to, when we went back to Barbados, obviously I had my secondary school education there, all of it. And um, in my class, I would say at least 50%, if not more of the children were born in the UK as well. So their parents had also come over and then gone back like mine. And so I knew it. So you sort of know, yeah. Uh, you know I knew I was born in England I know everyone else there was born in England but you don't really think a lot about it you're just getting on with your own life but then I think when it's later on in life that you look back and you really begin to look at your parents as kind of like people not just your parents who are there to <laughs> drive you to school every day <laughs> do everything for you while you're not doing anything productive in life yeah just look after you because you're their child and you look cute <laughs> <laughs> you know that's what, that's what they do uh, but you, later on you really look back and you appreciate them as people in their own right yeah. who had a life before you came but along you, even, you know existed yeah and you also think could, could and, and I don't know I mean I suppose it's all about the time you're born into right but I don't know if me who I am now or who I've been if I could have done what they did I say the same thing all the time yeah all the time because I think I think knowledge is power though because I think I know a lot more now and I'm much more empowered by information and I think essentially through Afro Leeds as well I've got a much more stronger sense of character and who I am but my mum's got this stealth of silent power and I'm not yes. silent I am very yes. when I'm annoyed or when I'm uncomfortable but that's yes. her power she wouldn't 
I don't know whether essentially if she could have survived if she hadn't had that sort of stealth. Yeah. The, the overt comments and just the environment would have been so difficult for me because I am visibly annoyed and visibly quite outspoken, but I couldn't have survived in that era being like that way at all. Yeah, that's, my that's how I feel. Because even then I came back when I was 28. So I came back in 1994 and obviously my mum, my dad, my sister are still in Barbados. So I've come back and when I came back, I was able to live with my aunt and uncle who saw on the same road that I'd lived on when I was a little child. So I lived with them for a year before they moved into my own place. So I still kind of did it, but it's a different time as well. So it wasn't that I had to go through the same things that they went through. And obviously I moved in with my same aunt and uncle, which is like my mum's brother, who they bought their houses in England on the same street. So, you know, I had a bit more privilege or, you know, comfort and things in place than they would have had coming at that time but I think as well there's also the question of like expectations I think the way we are raised now we're raised you know there was this civil rights movement in America everything is equal so we've probably got expectations that maybe they didn't have as well and I think my mum when she's come over here obviously before the pandemic she would say to me that in some ways she actually thinks this generation has it harder in some ways. She said that to me, yeah, because what she said was that when they came, at least they kind of had a kind of like a community. So yes, it was hard from maybe the wider community, but they still had, like I said, you know, you knew the other families, all the other black families around and the same ones on the street and you kind of helped each other out, taking each other's children to school picking children up, you know, doing a lot of things. And she says she doesn't find that a lot of us have that now. So she does actually sympathise a lot, my mum, with this generation. So it's funny, I think they've had it harder because they're things that I wouldn't be able to cope with. But then she's also saying that for even us, there's certain things that we don't have, we've lost, which they have. I find it really interesting that your parents returned. Was that always their plan? And uh, it's obviously not that unusual because you said about 50% of the children in your class are in the same situation. Because our parents, we grew up, our parents talked about going back. And we used to say going back, even though we were born here for a long time. And then it <laughs> got to teenage years and thought, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so yeah. I just wondered, my kind of, it's a double question. Like, why did your parents return and how did you feel about returning? Were you looking forward to that as a young adult? Or did you think, oh, no, I'm kind of quite settled here? My parents always said that they were going to go back. I I know that definitely on my mum's case, because I know when they came, and I think this was probably most people who came, I think they did have this idea that they come for 10 years. A lot of them had that idea, come for 10 years, work, and then go back. But I think it was so hard to get, I mean, you could get jobs, but, you know, the jobs weren't always that great and I think it wasn't that easy to save that money to go back and then life happens because you then obviously get older and you meet someone you have your children your children get to a certain age and I think there's almost like a kind of a cutoff point where if you haven't done it by that time it's not really going to happen even though it might have been your original intention so my parents they went back well my mum and my mum took me and my sisters for my sister first and then my dad came later in the year and my mum actually went back on the 1st of 
January 1980. I've never asked her if she, why they did it on like the first year of the new decade. I must ask her that, but they, yeah, they went on the, she went on the 1st of January 1980, taking my sister and me. And then my dad, he stayed to sell the house and then he came later on in the year. But I know in their case, the, the cutoff was because of my age, because they wanted to get me into secondary school in Barbados. So that's what they had to kind of decide to do it then, if they were going to do it at all. And so that was their aim. And I think a lot of people, that was their aim. But sometimes life just has different plans for people. But I find that really interesting. And from my perspective, when my parents used to speak about going back home, I used to have fear because I was like, we, like Julie said, we were, we were brought up in a very white area just outside of Hull. All my friends, like especially when you're younger, your friends are live, school is live. And I identified very much as like, this is home. So when you talk about back home, that's your back home, it's not mine. I used to really get scared. So uh-huh. from your perspective, I think, you know, it's, it was brave for your parents to come here, but we're really brave for your mindset to be so open to, to uh, accept back home is your home as well. Yeah, but I think, it, I think in those days it might have been a bit different, though, in the 70s, because in the primary school class I was in, um, well, I didn't really talk to boys because <laughs> you just didn't. But the girls, I would say a large number of the girls in the class were from parents who had come from the Caribbean as well. And we all used to kind of identify ourselves a bit from where our parents came from. So I knew that my parents came from Barbados and I knew there was another girl in the class whose parents came from Barbados. And I knew there were other girls in the class whose parents had come from Jamaica. So I'd been on holiday to Barbados once before, but it just seemed exciting. So it wasn't like when my parents said, we're going to Barbados, I wasn't sad. I was happy. I was happy to be going to this new country and this new life. So for me, it was definitely something that I was happy about. I wasn't scared. I think we'd we'd not gone, we hadn't visited Ghana very much. We'd gone as children, but couldn't really remember much about like so like toddlers and you were a baby. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting that you said like I, I definitely for a long time thought of ourselves as Ghanaian, very, very different, very othered for a long time. But I think just when I got to teenage years and you started to do exams and things, you just think as you say there's a cut off, it doesn't seem practical to be uprooted in that scenario and you just think well that's not really going to happen now but I think it's great that you were excited about about the transition and and it's like an adventure really isn't it and I guess if you again your parents then if they've always said it and then stuck to what they've said it's not a surprise it, but if they've yeah. never said anything and then New Year's Eve in 1979 that's true and it's funny because in those days I don't think people did really think a lot about preparing children and talking to children about things I think we we, we know to do that a bit more now but yeah because I think they'd always talked about it and I've heard them talking about it and I kind of knew oh my parents are from Barbados and we're going to go so yeah I was happy I was happy to be going there I think that's a credit to um I suppose the, the multicultural London as opposed to because I mean I never had that opportunity to, to or we never had um diversity in our classrooms I, I certainly didn't 
So to be excited and to identify with other people in a classroom, I think that's wonderful as well. I want that for my children moving forward. And I suppose it leads on to my next question as well. In terms of Ghana, we have a lot of, I'd say my education and my understanding of Africa comes from little bits of stories from parents, etc. And obviously TV at the time for children isn't as wasn't as diverse as it is now. So I think if it had not been for the stories, and I, w- I wouldn't say that I, I was kind of fed lots and lots of stories about how great Ghana was and, and, and your cousins, etc. Because life happened and I'm one of four children, so mum was very busy. But my awareness of Africa, shall I say, and, and the, the, the wealth and the history and the, you know, the good and the bad elements of politics, all of that stuff has come way later on in life for me. Whereas I think from your perspective, you would have just even having conversations about where you were from and where your college, your, your peers were from at school. It shows that there was a, a definitely a root of inquisitiveness and, and uh, understanding from a very young age. But essentially also your trips to Barbados and moving to Barbados, etc., would have added more layers to that understanding. I suppose overall, do you think your experience from childhood to, to let's say, early sort of adulthood did that shape your desire to know more about history in Africa or where did that desire come from? Um, I, I, I don't think it, well, I don't know, because sometimes you're not always aware of how influences or experiences in your life shape you. Mm. So perhaps they did, and I've never really um, thought about it a lot, but I know when I went to secondary school in Barbados, school came more alive for me than oh, primary wow. school. I was always a good child in school. I didn't misbehave. I did what the teacher said, you know, and everything. But I don't actually remember feeling connected to school when I was in primary school. My mum actually took a lot of responsibility for teaching my sister, you know, and me how to read. She would do that. She didn't want to just leave it to the school. And I do remember that. And I remember that even though my parents didn't have a lot of money, and what little they did have, they were saving to obviously complete their home back in Barbados, buy the house, well, build the house, because we build like you do in Ghana, which I love, Ghana, by the way. <laughs> and I remember, so we didn't have a lot of money. And I remember sometimes even my mum buying a bounty and like she'd buy one and my sister would have one bit, I'd have one bit. So she'd buy an orange and she'd give one half to me and one half to my sister. So I always remember things like that. But I do remember that she never... Ever my dad, because of course, you know, I'm saying mum, but it's mum and dad, but they never ever stopped us from having a book. So if it's any book we wanted, we always they always found the money for that. So that was very much what I remember from home. I don't actually really remember being very engaged in school here, but when I went to school in Barbados, that's when I remember becoming engaged. I became engaged with the English literature. We did Caribbean literature. We did all the British things as well, like Shakespeare and things like that. But we also did some Caribbean literature and we also did some African literature as well. And I remember that really sort of, you know, throwing. I obviously already had the interest in books because my parents had made sure they did that bit. But it was really the secondary school in Barbados where I remember books and reading coming more alive for me and definitely the history because we did some African history, not a lot, not enough, and not anything ancient, but we did touch on it a bit. And then we obviously did a lot of Caribbean history, which was mainly around enslavement, but we also focused on resistance. So I remember learning about the Haitian revolution and which was obviously a huge, um, you know, resistance to enslavement. 
And for me, I'll never, ever forget that class. I remember, I think that might have been the moment when history really came alive for me. So I think the interest was sparked there. Not that it was perfect or that we learned everything or everything I think we should learn now, but it definitely was different. And I think the enthusiasm of the teachers and yeah, I mean, maybe it was just because I was older, I don't know, but I certainly don't remember connecting with schooling here when I was younger. I loved history at school, but I remember when we studied the like slavery, my interest was switched off. It's the exact opposite. I remember like, actually going to, they had like a function called sick bay where children went if they were poor. And I remember every of the history classes going to sick bay because I just oh. felt all white kids, me being the only black person in that class, everybody like, maybe it was just in my head, but I just felt all eyes were on me and I just hated it. So yeah. I would remove myself from that environment and just go, go to sick bay. I hated it or try not be at school that day because it was awful. And I used to really love history. It's a shame actually. Yeah. So it kind of turned you off from it in a way. I mean, that's why I wanted to do the books that I did, because I just think, you know, I'm don't get me wrong. I think that we actually need to learn more about enslavement. I think we actually don't even know enough. But the problem is when that's all you learn and also the way that you learn about it, because when we learned about it, obviously, you know, we learned it was a bad thing and we learned the harsh things and it's obviously sad. But we also learned about the resistance, whether it was active passive resistance and like I said then you learn also about things like the Haitian revolution and if you're not doing all of that then I think you're really doing a disservice to the children I think it's really bad you know and do you know what one of my friends from school I remember having this conversation with them I said you know I really didn't enjoy learning about slavery is it at the time no this is recently and she said one thing that this whole the, the Black Lives Matter movement is really, she's a white uh, girl, has drawn to her eyes is the vocab. And, and you've just mentioned the way it was delivered you know, by a teacher. She says, you know, when I look back and I think the vocab um, where the Brits would settle in another country, it completely numbs the element of violence, pillaging, you know, all that aggressive language to settle, yeah. they settled in these countries. Yeah. And I thought, you know, for, for somebody, just as a, a random conversation to come out with that, I thought that was a real, a real lesson, I think, that people, if they've only learned a couple of things through this, you know, horrible, obviously, Black Lives Matter movement, it's great. And it's true, it's, it's the way it was marketed to children, you know, yeah. slavery, it's, it's, it's horrific. It's, it's, it does yeah. a real disservice. Yeah, I mean, there is a difference between conquering and settling. There really is a difference. Yeah. You know, people from the Windrush generation, they came here as to settle. Correct. Well, actually, some of them, you know, they didn't come as conquerors. It's slightly <laughs> different, you know. Definitely. And it's interesting. I really like the point you've made about how information is delivered to children. And not just to children, but just how it is um, delivered, especially around the... the transatlantic slave trade and just how important it is and as a kind of slight aside I really like how you present that to children so um, I haven't read the Windrush book but I have read this one I love it so it's the story of Afro hair 5,000 years of history fashion and styles I know it's for you know your your audience is much younger than I am but I'm really <laughs> educated by this book so thank you and uh, so beautifully illustrated mm. as well a lot of African and Caribbean hair care is strongly influenced by what was happening in, in America. So and obviously aware of Madam C.J. Walker, but a few yes. other pioneers I didn't know about. I really was fascinated about, uh, but but then how you like um, 
because I know your audience is it's, it's children to read them but my point is I just love how you kind of start to kind of unpick that about how people are enslaved and the cruelties that happen but just in a way that is understandable to a child but that but just not sugarcoating yeah. that either some of my goddaughters they're um I really want them to read this book. I feel it's really important so that they can start to know. Because they, they like with, um, doing my hair. Uh, notice that they're, they're white and they notice like the different, they like just, they do everybody's hair, but they like do my hair. I've, I've, I've had the conversation of, don't just go to any black person and touch their hair. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That's fine. Um, but I love it. So yeah, it's, um, the language is important. Yeah. And, and- oh, thank you, Julie. <laughs> Have you thought about animating any of your books? Because like Julie said, the visuals and the, 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 the books are great. And obviously using your imagination is a powerful tool as well. But I often think, you know, especially for to sit and watch something with a child as well, it's, it's just as impactful as well. Would you ever think about animating them? I, I actually have a friend who, funny enough, she was recently in Ghana. She was born in Nigeria and she's really into animation. And she has actually talked about it and said, know these books should be animated but I think animation is something that is really costly right something really expensive and then you need a lot of people involved to do it but maybe if the books get more and more popular maybe it would be something but because you know people have mentioned it and I think yeah it would be good to have them done as little animations as well a few people have also asked about doing the Afro hair book as an audio book. There are a few people who have said, you know, mm-hmm. they'd love that to be an audio book. Windrush as well, but more um, the Afro here. And what I would really love to do at some stage is have the books made into documentaries because okay. although, you know, you've got the book there and people are always saying that there's lots of information in it. When you write a book, I say it's a bit like an iceberg. You're only seeing the bit above the water. There's that whole bit underneath the waterline as well and it really really is like that I mean the amount of information that I had to leave out of the books like the Afro hair book that book could have been twice as long literally I had to leave out literally at least 50% of the information I found you know I had to do a lot of editing down so you know I just think it would be great to be able to put some of this into a documentary type of format as well and it would be fascinating because the stuff I really loved when you're talking about the British black British hair industry and I've heard is it Winston um Winston Isaacs Winston Isaacs been aware of him but there are other people like Birmingham London it's like why did you wait how on earth did you find out about these <laughs> like you know, obviously in their communities at the time they would have been such so oh, important because yeah. they one or two. but yeah just fascinating and people I'd never ever heard of so the amount of research you must have done so to say, think there's more that hadn't made it, it would make a brilliant documentary oh. and if you you know if some of the salons were still there or the buildings it'd be really interesting and yeah really uh, good to see them yeah and there's some some of these things there's still footage around there's still photos around mm. you know but obviously as you said it's a children's book and Thank you very much, Julie, for saying that you like the illustrations. They weren't done by me, of course, because I can't draw. They were done by a, a lovely young lady called Joelle Avellino. And, um, you know, so obviously that's the style of the book. And then it's got some photos as well. But there's lots of visuals as well that obviously haven't been included in the book. Mm. 
right. you know oh, so oh, I, it's actually funny. quite sad sometimes as a as a author how much you have to leave out and what decisions you have to make about what to put in and not to put in and then also as you said it is a book for children well I say 8 to 80 so it's okay but you know you obviously obviously have to put in things that are appropriate for a child of eight to read so there's also other stuff that you know maybe could go into a documentary or a film for older people that wouldn't be appropriate in the children's book so yeah there's just so much so much stuff I love it and I think the, the more people whether it's by reading by watching like either a documentary or even like an animated cartoon essentially that get the message it's going to be so impactful so yeah I'm, 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 we'll watch this space hopefully there will be a documentary it needs to fall into the right hands isn't it the right kind of producer yeah. or yeah it's got to be people that can see that vision and can understand it but it is as you said Steph you know people do actually consume information in different ways books are great and I think everyone should have books but sometimes even me myself I'll if if I'm interested in a topic I'll sometimes look for a documentary on that because sometimes it's a good way to consolidate the information you know some it doesn't happen as much now but in the past if people watched a film and they loved it and it was based on a book they'd go and buy the book and read it or vice versa you know so it's just yeah it's different ways of consuming the same information I definitely think there's an appetite for it certainly I think the last two years especially I've been shocked at how many more you know diverse especially in the black community books have been out even books that are written by children but I think something like the afro hair and especially the wind I love the windrush um because again I don't think I've been as educated as I would have liked to have been. And your Windrush book was a really good base of it for me to really get an understanding and then go and look elsewhere. Like you say, when people get attracted to something, they'll then research in different other sort of um, mediums. And I definitely did that. Um, so, oh God, I hope you do a documentary. That bit. I think a documentary <laughs> on the Windrush, Windrush book would be amazing. Oh, and fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. But I'm so glad that you said um, that, you know, it gave you the the interest to go and find out more because that's another thing I obviously as I said I've got to leave out so much there's so much you can't get into the books but I also never want to write a book and someone says well I've read that book now I know everything Mm -hmm. I'm never ever trying to write the definitive guide to this or the definitive book it's about giving lots of facts accurate facts information that people don't know things they might have overlooked links that sometimes people don't think about between different histories, especially with the Afro hair book, I tried to do that. And then just to empower the reader to now think, right, now I've got a sort of a framework that I can go away and find out more and do more with, you know? And that's why all my books are going to be different topics. I'm not really looking to revisit the same thing too much. I want to, because, you know, the Black history is so vast. It's thousands of years. It started way before enslavement. Still need to do more about that too but it started way before that and there's stuff after that and you know it's just so much that hasn't been written about and I'm on a mission to do that <laughs> to do that all Love that. Yeah. <laughs> is there a particular piece of work that you're most proud of no you know Julie I'm actually proud of everything that I have written I'm proud of it all it's all really different there are a couple of books that I think could have been better. Like I think my weakest book, if I'm honest, is the story of early ancient Egypt. But even that book, it still benefited a lot of people. I know someone who says they've been into museums and they've been able to use the timeline on the top. 
I know another person, yeah, a guy once told me he went to Egypt with his two daughters and um, they took the book with them and it really helped them to understand a lot of what they were seeing. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that was that was so good to hear. So, no, I and I don't actually have a favourite because they're all really different. They're different in style and topics. And I mean, the two most similar ones, I would say, are Secrets of the Afrocomb which was self-published years ago. And that was about the African combs, not just the Afro comb. And that was actually the one that inspired me to do the story of Afro hair. Because I thought we need a book about the hair itself now. And that, you know, so those two link. But even those two, they're still different, but, you know, so they kind of complement each other as well. So now I, I, I'm happy and proud of them all. Yeah, and so you should be, and I think you have definitely achieved. I, I just love your style of writing, and I like. Yeah. There's definitely, as I said, I've I've got all these kind of notes because I'm going to look up things, and then you've got a really helpful further reading. Yeah, that is so important. That was so yeah, that was so important for me, because also what I found as a non-fiction writer, sometimes I'll read a book, and I'll the author will give a quote or something and then in the back you can see where it is and then I'll go back to that source it doesn't happen often but sometimes I actually find that it's misquoted or sometimes the way that they've used the quote I don't really interpret what the person was saying in that way so that's why I think that's really important like I said I'm not trying to write definitive books anyway so I already want to make sure you've got things that you can go and do your further research but also it's good to be upfront and say, look, that's where that's come from, so that you can go back and look and see has it been interpreted in the way that the person said, which I try to do. So yeah, so that's really important for me to always have those things in the book. So as soon as she got the book, she's not stopped raving about it. To be honest, so we've got a new favourite top fan, top yeah. fan. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! And then just in terms of the community work that you do, do you enjoy all the community engagement? When do you have time to fit it all in? And would you like to engage with more of that kind of work? Well, to be honest, yes and no, because you've hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. I like it because it's really nice to be able to meet people face to face. Yes. You know, they tell you what they like about the book, hopefully. If they don't like it so much, they might tell you what they thought <laughs> it could have in, which is fine because that feedback then gives me ideas for future books or you know and helps me to improve so I do like it but the problem is time you know I just I still work you know I'm not a full-time author so I still have a day job so that means I'm doing all of my research and writing outside of my working oh wow day yeah so it's really hard to also do a lot of community engagement so I tend not to go to a lot of events or mm. you know do many things like that but yeah I would like to do more it's beneficial yeah but it is also time consuming and that's do you mind me asking what is your day job I didn't realize that you weren't a full-time author yeah I'm not a full-time author yet yes. uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> actually most authors aren't there are very very few authors now who who can do it as a as a full-time occupation that's just the reality mm-hmm. of the world today but um yeah I work in admin I do sort of like admin secretarial type works organizing people and um yeah I've been doing that job for quite a few years now so yeah still still 
spinning so all those plays. Do, do, That's do, incredible. Do your colleagues realise that you're an author? And what what do they make of it? Yeah, so when I first started, I kept it really quiet because I didn't really want to say anything. (laughs) Then I told like a couple of people. So yeah, generally they do know. When I did the story of the Windrush, I actually did a a presentation in my work. So yeah, my colleagues, yeah, my colleagues do know and they're quite supportive. But it is something that I do outside of work, you know, so I do my job and then I do this it, it kind of started as a hobby and it's sort of grown from there well it, it's I say a hobby it's always been a bit of a mission but yeah so they are aware of what I do oh, it's incredible. like the most impressive side hustle I've ever yeah. <laughs> like, I do, like yeah because this is gonna take a lot of time it does it the, really does, it is does. It basically, so I was gonna say if you're not working you're writing kind of thing. yeah pretty much yeah yeah wow and may we ask what you're currently working on, if you're happy to share? Or... Yes, I'm happy to share. I'm working on a book about um, Britain's Black Airmen. So oh. it's going to be about the contributions of African and African-Caribbean, mainly men, to you know their contributions to the First and Second World War. And there's actually going to be some new information in the book, which hasn't been published in a children's book before about Britain's first black pilot which at the moment if you looked on the internet most people think is Robbie Clark a yeah, guy called William Robertson Clark yeah, yeah from Jamaica but it's actually someone who was a couple of years before him oh it's yeah. I love this <laughs> sorry the reason why I say that is because every time I hear something new Judy goes oh exclusive <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that information is going to be included in this book as well. Gosh, oh. your research must be so thorough. So, sorry, go on. I was going to say, when when will is that expected to be out? Hopefully September. This year? Yeah, oh, hopefully yeah. September this year. Yeah, have had a few little stumbling blocks and things, a few unexpected uh, personal things, but if all goes to plan, September this year. Oh, please keep us posted. We'd definitely love to. I mean, people need to know about it. It's a topic that hasn't had a lot of attention. attention. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And if there's also kind of um, new information, we'll definitely, we'll definitely push that on our promos as well. Because I think I'll keep you know, informed. Yeah. Often we know more about the African-American uh, quadrant. Um, but uh, yeah, that, oh, wow. So let's come to the part of the podcast where we ask our Melanie Magic question, uh, which is what are your hopes and dreams for Black British culture in the next five to 10 years? And do you have any insights or any ideas on how we're going to get there? I have always got ideas on everything. (laughs) I love you. This is brilliant. (laughs) I'm never short of ideas. That's one thing. Whether they're realistic or not is another matter, but I'm never short of the ideas. No, I I think... um, I mean, I obviously have positive thoughts and dreams and hopes for Black British culture in the future. I can't speak a lot to things like music and arts and industry because that's not my forte, but I can speak to the history. And um, for me, I do feel that at the moment we're severely lacking in where we can go or should go in terms of Black British history. I mean, you know, you're of Ghanaian heritage, I'm of Barbadian heritage. Black Britain is quite 
unique and quite lucky in that we are a very diverse community. We are Black British, but we have got connections to so many other nationalities, you know, even though we come together under one umbrella. Britain was the centre of an empire that ruled a quarter of the world. There's so much history here, some of which I've tried to bring out in my books. There's the ancient artefacts from ancient Egypt, from the ancient Sudan. There's objects from, whether you like it or not, parts of Africa, whether they should be returned or not, not all will be returned, they're still here. And then there's the records, the archives of how empire was one, run, enslavement, whether we like it or not, lots of that here. There's so much here that it's just being left to gather dust, as I say, in museums or, you know, just being unexplored. So there's such a gold mine of things that we could do. And what I would love to see is every October, Black History Month really, really living up to its potential, not being conflated with being about arts or, you know, but actually being about real history. We should have people coming from all over the world, coming to Britain during October to know that they're gonna be book launches about black history, new information that's never been told before. Films, could be movies based on some history thing, it could be documentaries. There's so much potential, you know, it could be like a worldwide fixture that we also can benefit from from having people come. People should be coming from the Caribbean, from Africa, African-Americans should be coming to see, you know, we should really do a lot, lot more with Black History Month than what we're doing. I think, I think we're failing to see the potential of it. And I think that's a shame. And I think that's something that we should look at for the future because the potential is huge. That sounds so exciting. I'm already thinking like, <laughs> just even the wealth of the conversation in like reception rooms after watching a panel event or reading a book or somebody promoting something you would just yeah. buzz on a different vibration it would be yeah. incredible incredible but it's got to be history I think what often happens is that that history month comes around and people just think oh let's just get black people to do something and once it's someone talking about maybe diversity or something else that just ticks the box but that's the stuff that you should be doing all year. You should be doing that 11 months of the year, diversity, arts, music. But when it comes to Black History Month, we as a community should say, no, we want history. We want some of this Black history that is still uncovered, still hidden, still not talked about. That's what we want in that month. So I think we have to raise our, our understanding of what history is and raise our expectations. And I think... The potential is absolutely huge and it's something that we can all benefit from as well as the wider community of course. Imagine the next generation who are used to that kind of environment year on year where they would be 10, 15, 20 years down the line having had a yeah. month of just consolidated information that's you know yeah. really progressive as well you know not kind of whitewashed or like let's let's not mention that because of it you know it has an implication on the crown or what It'd be incredible. Yeah. And think about it. Suppose you have a child who wants to be an actor or an actress, you know, at the moment, they're going to be limited to what roles they can play if they want to play roles reflecting, you know, black history. But imagine if you really, really, really go where it can go, how many roles they could have as a career. You know, there's so many things that would could spark out of this. So, yeah, that's my dream. That's my, that's 
my idea. It's a really powerful point you've made about October because often it is the the focus isn't often on the history. Yeah, Some, that's what it's supposed to be. Bit, yeah, it, it is more kind of us, yeah. isn't it? Or kind of conversational about piece. visibility almost. And you know, yeah, yeah, it doesn't go far enough, as you, you rightly say. Yeah. Wow. So, where can our listeners find more of these? nuggets of information and how can they find you you're happy to share your social media handles yeah I'll share the three that I use the most well I've got a website which is goldendestiny.co.uk so that's pretty straightforward golden destiny or one word co.uk um, I've also got Instagram which uh, I have a lovely young lady who helps me with because I'm a bit useless but she's doing a good job with that so and I do actually read the messages on there. So that's at Kandasi Chimbiri for Instagram. And then I also sometimes on Twitter, which is a different one. That's my initials. So that's KN Chimbiri. That's been such an enriching conversation. I feel totally empowered. I'm going to start writing books. I'm going <laughs> to... Yay! <laughs> I'm definitely going to, especially, I'm going to revisit more because there's lots of history that I love. But I think just speaking to somebody like yourself, you just feel so empowered to think, you know, you're just scratching the surface. Keep going. Yeah. Keep going. It's so encouraging. I love it. So I'm sure other listeners would have felt the same. So thank you so much. It's been amazing. Thank you for just being so given and so vulnerable in certain areas of your life as well and talk about your family and everything that's been amazing. And thank you for joining us today. It's been an absolute honor, hasn't it? It has. It really has. Thank you. And thanks for our listeners as well. And join us again next time. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Steph.